reason why is because these individuals who I've been able to motivate to stick with me and just give so selflessly of their time. Right? So people say, well, how do you do it? It's like, I don't do shit. I'm the lens. I just, mm -hmm. I convince all the other bulbs to give me their light and then I just help focus it. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing I do is it, you know, I, I cheer them to give me as much light as possible. I help focus it and we do amazing things together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. And Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience and challenges each and every one of us to think, question, and synthesize wherever your curiosity takes you. Our guest today on the podcast is Dr. Eric Fretz. Dr. Fretz is a fellow member at the University of Michigan teaching in the psychology department, the School of Education, the College of Engineering, and teaches the LSA core course for the minor of entrepreneurship. Dr. Fretz has completed two bachelor's degrees, two master's degree, and a dual PhD in education and psychology. Dr. Fretz has also served in the United States Navy. He has 20 years of active and reserve service. His military career included three deployments to the Persian Gulf from Operation Desert Storm through Operation Iraqi Freedom. He closed out his military career with a year-long mobilization to Baghdad, Iraq, serving in military national corps Iraq assigned to the Army's 18th Airborne Corps in 2008. While in Iraq, he started a scout troop and built a camp for Iraqi youth around Victory Base. He has earned over 30 military awards, including the Bronze Star Medal and the Defense Meritus Service Medal. Now, with all of that, everyone, that is a short spark notes of everything that Dr. Fretz has done and has been a part of. I shortened it for space and time here because there's just a lot. Dr. Fretz is a polymath for sure and as you'll hear is this is one that joe actually took over and hosted this one because joe jakowski who's here on the podcast all of the time as many of you know is going to school in the university of michigan and as part of the student veteran association which dr fretz is a mentor and focal point of the entire program he really has a gravitational pull and so in this podcast we really get into some biographical stuff around what Dr. Fretz was shaped like, why did he get in the military, and how did the military experiences translate into the academic world again, and then now as a leader. And one of the things that we really dive deep into is this idea of virtuous cults, as Dr. Fretz self-describes. He really creates these like magnetic pull places that tribes for lack of a better term that really pull people together and it's it's about this inviting and stimulating environment and he really has this interesting idea about leadership where people ask why how he does it and it's not he's like it's not me and i'm a lens and i focus these great people and they get to do their job and i really enjoy that and this conversation i there's so many takeaways here and there's so much to just discuss and digest and i'm really excited to be able to share this all with you and so without further ado please enjoy this conversation with dr eric fretz hello welcome everybody i'm joe jakowski back again and here with wenzel as always mm -hmm. and we're sitting outside on a nice little cliffside bar overlooking the huron river at uh, University of Michigan. Near the University <laughs> of Michigan with a friend and mentor to me, uh, Eric Fretz, who I think I'd let you introduce yourself <laughs> and, give, and give your bio of all the things that you do <laughs> at the University of Michigan, because I don't know if I can keep them all straight in my head. Oh, sure, sure. Um, 
I mean, I guess the, the top key things are I'm a full-time faculty member at the University of Michigan. I'm a faculty lecturer, um, and I'm a little unusual in that I'm a, in multiple areas. So I'm in engineering, um, applied liberal arts, psychology, and sometimes also the School of Education. So I, I teach kind of all over the place as requested. Um, most of the courses are courses that I've created because I have a lot of background in curriculum design. Um, and then I serve on various uh, committees and other things throughout the university. Those are all pretty much just volunteer gigs. Um, and uh, in terms of other sort of paid jobs, I'm the state director for Selective Service System in the state of Michigan. So that's the draft infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a federal job, but it's only part time. Uh, pretty much uh, it's, a, it's a federal job where you, you, you work when you want to. <laughs> it's very unusual. Uh, maybe not. Um, and then... Uh, I also do some paid international consulting with U of M through um, the William Davidson Institute, which um, is an unusual uh, consulting firm that is contained within the university. It was established with a grant years oh, wow. ago and then has evolved into a um, sort of a paid consulting system that uh, it basically finds and allocates U of M uh, academic faculty talent and shares that where needed uh, throughout the world in different grants and, and programs and projects. Um, So I'm involved in that, um, going over to Turkey and helping them teach uh, Syrian refugees how to be food entrepreneurs. Those are the major uh, sort of paid gigs. And then as my wife likes to complain that, you know, 50% of what I do isn't paid, but (laughs) I really, I've really got, since I retired from the military, I've really gotten into volunteer work. So uh, I do a lot of significant and uh, major and then also minor roles as a volunteer. I think the biggest ones are founded and run a couple of uh, veteran helping charities. I direct the mentor program for the Washtenaw County Veteran Treatment Court here in Washtenaw County. Um, And then I'm the chairman uh, for VCAT 9, which is Veterans Community Action Team for Region 9. There's 10 regions in in Michigan. They try to have a a VCAT in each one. It's it's an unusual structure. It's supported by the state, but it's entirely volunteer. So I volunteered to lead it and the other volunteers agreed to follow me and we've had great <laughs> success with it. The, the, the task is uh, is to basically help coordinate efforts amongst all the agencies and individuals who are helping veterans within our area, help them get to know each other better, make sure that we can have what's called a warm handoff. So any vet that's in trouble um, with, a, let's say, issue A and issue B, if you're with somebody who only fixes issue B, but you also need help with issue A, how do we make sure that the person helping you with issue B knows about the resources for issue A and gets mm. you to somebody so that we don't just fix issue B and then put you back out there and issue A is still a problem and mm-hmm. you end up having mm-hmm. a bad outcome. So we're trying to uh, enhance the sort of the the collective Rolodex of all the veteran helpers in six counties covering between 15 and 100,000 veterans. Mm-hmm. And again, all volunteer. Uh, I have a small, very small budget from the state and one uh, part-time employee that kind of serves to do some of the admin stuff for me. Fascinating, fascinating job. Um, really am enjoying it because it allows me to sort of be very active uh, across a whole range of veterans issues. Um, and then a host of other smaller things as well. But those are, those are kind of the big ones. <laughs> well, there's more than a few, <laughs> a few of that. <laughs> okay, so, geez, it's like kind of where to start with. I could ask, how did you get into each individual one? But I think that the interesting route for me is that you started – not in all those once upon a time then you were in the navy so how'd you get from how'd you get into the navy and then draw a through line like how I mean, this is gonna be a long story and i'm sure feel free to stop on the sides and go <laughs> tell stories like you do uh all along the way but how did you get from 
before the Navy, into the Navy, and then from there into all the stuff that mm-hmm. you're in now. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, obviously, starts when I was very young. <laughs> um, and I definitely have to, I think, as we all do, if we look carefully, sort of credit our parents, um, you know, my father's history and upbringing and his life um, definitely uh, affected me. And I think in some ways, as I look back on it, I think he, as I've said to other people, I think my father sort of built me specifically in a sort of a vision. He wanted me to have certain experiences. He ensured that I had access to certain opportunities that he didn't have. And he modeled a series of behaviors that were very powerful. So I really think that even to this day, uh, I'm just sort of, you know, in some sense, being my father's son. I think, you know, you always want to, you always want your father's approval. You always sort of look to him, I think, in, at least in a, in a ideally in a, in a well-functioning family you sort of you always have that effect of like you know what did my dad do what would my dad admire um so i think that's a big piece of it i was um i was raised uh in um, prince george's county maryland um in a primarily uh blue collar maybe entry-level white collar suburb uh, back in the 70s that of course was when the suburbs were sort of almost reaching their peak mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so this was a small um little little town um on the beltway uh and was sort of very economical um and um, we lived there for a number of years until about uh, fifth grade. And then uh, my father was looking at the um, middle school and the high school, and they had a little bit of a drug problem going on. He was a little concerned about that. And so he took a real leap and he sold our house and we launched ourselves over to nearby Montgomery County, which is one of those, you know, top 100 counties in the nation kind of thing. The largest tax base, uh, Potomac, Maryland is this extremely wealthy area. I think that one of my two miles away or so through, through maybe three miles away was uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, I think had a house. There was a lot of sort of famous folks with very large sort of mansions. We were, we were just on the other side from the mansions, but we were in a very nice house in a very nice neighborhood, the very well-funded school system and he he did that for the school system he knew that the school system was very highly rated and so i ended up going to junior high and high school and these really unusual i didn't know how unusual they were so like my my um my junior high it was sort of an open concept so there weren't a lot of classrooms it was a lot of open space it kind of got reconfigured oh, wow. um, had a lot of really innovative uh, teachers and programs that you could do when i went to high school we're talking this was 1980 81 82 i'm in a high school that has not just one, but two completely stocked computer labs with 30 computers each. And I mean, if you know of that era, really unusual, right? To be learning DOS and programming mm-hmm. in an era when you know the average person at home had no, no knowledge of this kind of stuff. Um, really high powered high school, sent like 97% of its uh, graduates to, to college of some kind, which again is just a bizarrely large number. But to me, it was just high school. And so I, you know, I never appreciated till later how much my father sacrificed. I always knew we were the least wealthy family in the wealthy neighborhood, right? Because <laughs> I was like, what'd you get for Christmas? I got, well, I got this thing. And like, what else you get? I'm like, no, I just, I get one thing. Like, I get this thing. This is my, this is my Christmas present. And he's like, oh, well, I got this, 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 this. Yeah, I got a moped. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Let's, let's go take a ride in your moped. So there was just, a, you know, my father had a very specific vision on, on how he was going to spend his money. He really liked to travel and he was willing to invest in the family and get us into that school district. Um, you know, but we were always, you know, I, I can remember that I would, I would go out to McDonald's or something you know like twice a year you know mm-hmm. one, once maybe as a treat for something and once for my birthday <laughs> and that was it <laughs> other than that we could eat at home because that was how you balanced your budget um anyway um and my father really really wanted me to go to ivy league school so he pushed me to take all kinds of classes and ap and honors this and that and uh, had me take um and me take various tests i took the sat when i was a sixth grader 
So when mm. I was sixth grade, I was 11 years old. I took the SAT and I beat the national average for graduating high school seniors. So like the average is around, you know, a thousand. Mm-hmm. And I got, I think, 1050 or 1060 <laughs> um, when I was 11 years old. And um, that was partly because he was, you know, he coached me, right? In the sense that he taught me some of the key mathematical concepts. I mean, there's 10, 10, 15% of, of algebra and geometry, some core concepts. If you have those down, you can answer a lot of those math questions correctly, right? right. So by no means did I know what a high school graduate knew, but I knew enough. It was an interesting initial experience in, in testing mm-hmm. and test taking. Um, so anyway, I was, you know, I was a reasonably bright little kid and I was uh, doing a lot of different programs and, and I enjoyed that, but I wasn't a stellar student. I was, uh, by, by junior year, I was kind of ambivalent. I wasn't getting the best grades. And so, um, and I was really heavily involved in Boy Scouts. So um, with uh, Boy Scouting, I really, that was the one thing I was kind of excited about. You know, I, I played high school football, is okay. I did high school swimming, I was better at that. I lettered in the swimming. Um, but what I really liked was leadership. I really liked being in charge of my uh, high school uh, church youth group. I liked being the uh, senior patrol leader for my scout troop. And so that was what really got me kind of excited. And so mm-hmm. most of my adult mentors told me, look, if you like leadership and you want to be paid to lead, the place to really do that and get good at it is the military. And this was at mm. a time when there were a lot more military was less uncommon. Right back, mm-hmm. back in when I in the 60s and 70s, it was normal to know multiple people and to have multiple neighbors that all had had some experience in the military. Mm-hmm. Whereas now that is freakishly not the case. Right? It becomes a progressively every year becomes more unusual to know anyone who has firsthand experience with the military. Um, so they all recommended this and there's no military tradition in my family at all. So my parents were quite befuddled when I decided I wanted to go to Michigan and pursue an ROTC scholarship, which I was able to get uh, and then went, did four years at Michigan. And that is the sort of the quick outline of how I ended up in the Navy. So I really felt, you know, very, very prompted, very, uh, very, um, I needed to, to serve others. There was a, there was a sort of this theme of, of service to others and that I think partly was given to me by my dad. And I think just kind of enhanced by my experiences. I really enjoyed working with groups and helping them sort of get to a collective goal. So that was always really inspiring to me. So I sought that out and the, the Navy provided a lot of that. And, mm-hmm. um, then for about 20 years in the Navy, active duty, uh, and retired, um, so I had about 10 years active, 10 years reserve total. Um, and uh, that was also super interesting. Um, and when I, the last half of that, while I was working as a um, uh, reservist, um, also in the selective service system, which is, so I, I did the entry level job of the people I supervise now. So it's very interesting to sort of, you know, it's good, it's good to be a boss and have the experience of what you're, you know, the people working for you have done, because it makes mm-hmm. you, I think, a much more empathetic and effective leader. Um, anyway, did that for 10 years. And while I was in the reserves, I was also back in school. Um, and that's where I got sort of on the second track, you would never have predicted it, obviously, because I started out, it was just all about the Navy. I mean, if you'd, if you'd known me when I was an undergrad, the only thing I wanted to do was be a commissioned officer in charge of a ship. It's like I wanted command at sea. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the John Wayne guy in the World War II movie, standing on the bridge, pointing at the enemy on the horizon, you know, train the guns, <laughs> open fire. Um, but except back then, it you know, it was obviously Russia, right? I mean, this was mm-hmm. the era of the 80s, super jingoistic, Russian bear everywhere, commies under yep. every bed, um, you know, mutual assured destruction, salt to the, you know, missiles and all of this and, and the whole idea of like they were going to take over Western Europe and it was going to be the Navy's job to sweep across the Atlantic and sweep aside all the Russian Navy to make sure we could get the army resupplies over there to, to save Western Europe from the menace. All, all of that stuff was really a very lived in reality for everybody. And mm-hmm. I, in, in the moment, that was my big thing. Um, I could never have imagined doing anything else. And um, just over time, small changes. I uh, 
you know, I ended up uh, doing what for six or seven years active duty, um, shifted in reserves, was mobilized a couple times for the rest of the active duty. But while I was serving at a Great Lakes, uh, Great Lakes uh, Naval Training Center, I, uh, I had a uh, bunch of the guys who worked for me were, um, uh, they were like, I was like the school superintendent slash principal slash kind of manager. And I had a couple of dozen um, senior enlisted men uh, and women working for me. And uh, sometimes in meetings, they would throw out these educational theories. And I was like, oh, okay, hold on. <laughs> like, I know none of you guys have had none of you guys have college degrees. I do. And we all <laughs> went to the same Navy schools. How do you know all these theories? And uh, they're really interesting. And they said, oh, we're learning them on the weekends. Um, we have all of these uh, classes. We're, we're doing a bachelor's degree in education and training with Southern Illinois University. They have a remote campus here on the weekends. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating. And so I just... Because of that, on a whim, I just went to that office and sat down and talked with uh, Dr. Jeff Flesher, I think was his name. Great guy. And he, he explained everything to me. And he said, yeah, you just you already have a bachelor's degree from Michigan. So that weighs all of our core and everything. You just need to. Oh, that's just some angry squirrels. <laughs> so. Uh, so anyway, um, he said, yeah, you just take take the weekend classes and do the capstone internship and you'll have a bachelor's degree from SIU in, in education and training. No way. Oh. So I did it. And, uh, what, was and your, I, what was your first degree? In? I never I never talk about this from Michigan. <laughs> I, uh, I, functionally, as a point of actual fact, um, in terms of my experience, it really was a general studies degree. Right. It, it happens to be in German, uh, which embarrasses <laughs> me because I, A, I'm, I'm terrible. I was never that great at German anyway, um, and I'm terrible at it now um but i ended up getting a degree in german basically because for like a lot of things when i was that young i was just a dumbass i i got into a program called the residential college which was wonderful and very enlightening um and very very liberal and they required eight credits of german a term for four terms so at the end of my sophomore year i had 32 credits of german and wow. i did that just because okay this required this is what i have to do and i wasn't really thinking it all the way through uh and so <laughs> it turns out that if you're on a four-year scholarship and you can't there's no option for extra time and you have 32 credits oh. of german on your transcript it turns out that the only major that actually will work and line up and check off <laughs> all the boxes is german so i was the most reluctant and unhappy german major that 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 poor department has ever seen <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the senior level, um, the senior level composition and grammar instructors, those professors, uh, I think they, pa I, I know I got a D and I think they gave me a D only because they knew since it was my major, that if they failed me, I was just going to be back the next term <laughs> to torture them some more. And so I, like I said, I was not a stellar, uh, I was neither a stellar student and I was particularly not a good German student. Um, but I did get a lot from my time at U of M, right? I mean, I definitely had a really good liberal arts college experience. I took a lot of great classes. Um, it was very broadening to be in both the ROTC, which is very conservative, and to be in the residential college, which is very liberal and progressive, mm -hmm. really forced me to sort of examine all my political beliefs, really mm -hmm. helped me shape and form those and realize just how multifaceted and how you know neither neither side really seemed to fit me. I would sort of go issue by issue, and that was, mm -hmm. I think, a, a good lesson. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, that's how I wound up doing that. You know, that was my first bachelor's degree, and again, I got it only because I had to get it in order to go to the Navy. But right? mm -hmm. if you had told me, "Hey, guess what? You don't actually have to finish your degree. You can go get a commission and start your Navy career," I'd have walked out of my classes and never looked back. Because wow! The, because the degree was nothing to me. <laughs> yeah. What I wanted was to be an officer in the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I would have regretted that decision over time. But as I was younger, I didn't care about schooling at all. So the idea that I would come back into academia. 
really bizarre. Like if you tried to explain that to me from the eighties, I don't think the eighties version of me could have understood that. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, I put my toe back in it and I get this bachelor's degree and it's great because all my classes apply to my work. All the stuff that's happening at work applies in my classes. And I had what I think is an idealized kind of baccalaureate undergrad experience that I think everyone should have. But I think far too people, far too few people do. I think a lot of people who go to college now go because there's no other adequate answer to what do you do after high school. They mm -hmm. just go to college mm -hmm. because they that's the next step in their sort Whatever of education. Tells, tells it's, the, it's the next step in their educational incarceration, right? Where they just have <laughs> it's a little, little, little more fun, but it's still the same thing of like you just largely. It's not done purposefully. It's just done because. Um, yeah. And then I had a really good mentor, and this is back to another theme of mine, where you know mentoring is so key. It's just uh, had a uh, edge psych professor who told me, "Hey, you know, you really did great in my class, and I think you'd be a great master student. We have the summertime masters class." So I went down and tried their summertime intensive masters. It was a you know really nice format for adults, non traditional learners, and I got a master's degree and started doing some research and got exposed to grad school, and that was super fun. Was this while you're still in? Uh, this was still when I was uh, on. I uh, was still finishing up active duty. Yeah, and uh, mm -hmm. did that over the summers, and then did some more of it right as I started in the reserves, and was just finishing that up when I came back to Michigan in '97, '98. Um, and of course, same thing. They had a had a master's class with a professor and who guy who helped me with my thesis, and he said, you know, I'd love to have you as a PhD student. I think you'd be a great doctoral student. Again, same thing. Just kind of opened my eyes. Wow, I could be a PhD student. Never, you know, it, oddly enough, both of my parents have PhDs, so it wasn't like I lacked for models of academic career path. It just honestly never struck me as a thing. And mm -hmm. when they said, you know, you could do this at this level, I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. And I just felt like I should at least try. So instead of a lot of people applied like a dozen different places for grad school, right? I just was applying so that it, I wanted to apply to one. One place so that when I was 50, I didn't hate myself for not trying. And so I applied to the hardest, one of the hardest programs at U of M, combined program in ed psych. So it's a dual PhD in psychology and education. They get like 100 plus applications a year and they let in like four people. So I just wow. thought there's no way. And so I did the best application I could. And my father helped me and he was involved extensively in graduate psychology programs. So I'm certain that helped and that he could give me some insight onto what a well-crafted statement would be. Um, and I put it in and crossed my fingers and I was just shocked when they let me in. So I became kind of an ambivalent <laughs> PhD student because I, I sort of was really shocked actually when they let me in. I was like, oh, hi, guess I'm going to grad school. And I, you know, a lot of my peers came in and they're like, oh, I can't wait to work with professor so-and-so. And I already have this data from my senior thesis and it's going to be applicable and he's going to help me publish it. And I'm going to do this. And this is what my dissertation is going to be on. And I'm going to be done in four years. And I'm looking at these people like, holy crap. Like I, I have made a mistake <laughs> because the I, had, I have not even selected my running shoes and these people are already in the blocks and are about to launch. And I'm like, literally don't even have shoes on. Um, um, and so, yeah, it took me a little longer to get my PhDs, but um, it worked out really well. It was a great experience. So. That's, a, that's a funny thing that I keep seeing pop up with veteran types. The, the, the Especially here in Michigan, is I didn't think I was going to get it. I didn't really think about it. I just said, hey, why not? And then I went for it. Like, that was definitely my experience. I, was, I had no concept that Michigan was like a good school even. Like, I just didn't know. I hadn't paid attention to colleges in high school because I thought I was, I was going to go in the military. And then when I got out of the military and was just doing junior college, I was just like, I don't know, I'll just apply to a school sound cool. So I applied to the, I wanted to be a BCN here because it seemed to fit. And I was like, okay. And then I got in and I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to do a good school. All right, let's go. And then I started to learn like through you and the SVA and the people here. I was like, Oh no, it's a really good school. <laughs> like, oh. like, like six out of seven people who apply who are all qualified get told no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's good. So yeah, so I was, that's that's quite a ramble I just went on. So I don't know. Yeah, so what? Uh, PhDs is where we kind of just yeah went. yeah yeah. So that's crazy. So I'm trying to think how how did like the military since we're kind of touching on it already. How did the military? really help prepare you for that kind of educational world because they're they kind of seem different to me oh you're very different. like right it's a conservative world it's a very liberal world here but like i've noticed that a lot of the skills from the military this kind of hard charging go forward get stuff done the discipline has re- yeah has really applied here yeah, super useful and, and it's i think it's just super useful everywhere i think that mm-hmm. you know i feel very lucky in a lot of cases because i had uh, you know i had a father who made sure i was afforded Literally, if not the best, then close enough to the best upbringing educationally that I could have. Right, it was a very mm-hmm. stable environment with the best possible schools. Even here at Michigan, and I came in, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was still hard to get in back then, but it isn't as hard as it is for you guys. And um, but I know even when I came in here the first time at Michigan, you know, my first year, I was in a lot of the first year hundred level courses, and a lot of the people who were smart and who definitely had come from good schools, but they had not done X, Y, and Z. And I had already done that in my high school. So the, the college mm. preparatory stuff from my school was noticeably better. And I was uh, repeating stuff that was definitely new to others. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So were there any individual experiences in the military that you thought were like really ended up either forming you in a way that helped out later or the skills you got translated like really well into there. Yeah, for sure. When I, uh, I mean, ROTC was obviously interesting and I did a lot of stuff. I worked, I worked a lot with the Marine options and the Marines uh, on the, the drill team and other stuff. So there was like an, I did a lot of extra stuff that was like sort of discipline and leadership related. And it taught mm-hmm. me a lot of good lessons. Um, and then um, for my first five years of active duty, because I was, uh, I was ranked number one in military aptitude for my class. So I got to pick the first orders. So I picked uh, the newest, fanciest, most expensive ship that we had, which was the USS Chosin, which was uh, an Aegis cruiser, which back then was just the ultimate expression of warfare at sea, right? It was mm-hmm. over a billion dollars. It had weapon systems that were sort of functionally untouchable. It was just, it was the, it was the most capable 10,000 pounds of steel uh, that, that any nation had ever put into the water. And still today, if you were to fully, you know, it's in layup right now, but if you were to fully reactivate it and crew it with a competent crew, it could take on any two ships of any other Navy in the world and probably win. I mean, they're just that good. Wow. It was really cool to be on that ship. And I was part of the first crew. So it was a really hyper training environment. And, uh, and you were, these people who had been selected were selected for pre-con precisely because they were the best. So I was with a complement of other officers that was really driven to excellence, right? And was really driven to have like a strong, um, you know, like a, not just a strong training ethic, but like an intolerance for anything but excellence. Mm-hmm. And I, because I was one of the newer officers, but I wasn't the only new officer, I got to participate in just tons and tons of training, see lots of really good examples and get pushed really hard um, because we had to be ready for the ship when it came out of the shipyard. And mm-hmm. so that was a really nice experience. Uh, I mean, it was nice at the time because it was, you know, it was like 20 hour days for like yeah. years, right? It was really like the, the surface warfare community in the United States Navy, you know, is famous for sort of dumb slogans like we eat our young. Well, they really do. They, they just, you know, they, I convinced that if, if, if what it took was to keep the ship moving was to just, you know, take officers and crew members and grind them up in the reduction gears to lubricate it, you know, that the surface community would, would gladly do that as long as it ensured operational success, right? They're willing, <laughs> their willingness to sacrifice humans and humanity to meet operational goals is all out of proportion to where it should be right like if it's mm-hmm. i understand that if it's like a mission critical thing and 10 10 soldiers sailors marines or airmen have to die to get a certain thing to happen that 
that flips a battle that changes the social political mm -hmm. dynamic in the war mm -hmm. like okay and, and and all of us signed up to do that right but there's other times where it's like just because you have the authority to crush someone for convenience doesn't mean you should yeah. right? <laughs> and so there's a, there's a lot of this that i experienced and sort of this really i got i got used to working under deadlines working under immense pressure doing multiple things at once and delivering at a very very high standard of mm -hmm. not perfection but close to it um, and an intolerance for sort of error and a lot just a lot of really good habits because the leaders would teach them to you and then your experience would teach them to you because mm -hmm. you you would do something wrong and, and there's you know if you, theoretically you, you know if you do it wrong you, somebody could die so there was this seriousness to the military that really helped you inculcated these these disciplined habits and this expectation of success and this willingness to sort of work really hard at something so that to, to your question that's the thing that really i found useful was things that where you had to work really hard to get something done and really seemed onerous to other people by the time i was you know in a reserve mode and working mostly in a civilian situation you know just things that seemed trivial to me uh seem very hard to the people mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. things that I just, I, and I think I was probably a pretty good person to have working for you because I just, I took things from the military standpoint. Like I, here's an example of what I'm talking about. I, I was doing my capstone internship with Bell and Howell in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I was working with this manager named Wes and I was basically an intern for him. So I was working alongside his other managers, helping him do a training project. And so we would have these meetings every Friday or Monday and Friday, we'd have meetings. And on Monday, Wes said, okay, well, we need this blah, blah, blah report. And I said, oh, John, you have the blah, blah, blah report by Friday. Yeah, no problem. And Friday comes around and uh, Wes says, you know, well, where's the blah, blah, blah report. And John says, oh, I didn't have time to get to it. And I just still recall this visceral tension because, of course, I'm, I'm still on active duty. I'm just doing this as a part-time thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm in this mode of wh what if I'm in a department head meeting and and all the junior officers are just and we're told to have the report by Friday. And this idea that you would go back to your boss and say, I didn't have time to do it. I mean, that's that's just not yeah. that that is not a phrase that's allowed. I mean, you know, you know, in the Marine Corps, you you would never you would never even say that word to a senior enlisted or an officer yeah. would give you the order because the answer would be not not you didn't. They, they would discover you having died trying to complete the task of exhaustion and say, oh, he must have not had enough time to finish this. Right? That, that, that's how it worked in the military. Not that you're actually at a meeting saying that you didn't have time because that's just not an option. And so mm -hmm. I just remember, I was so tense and all my muscles you know, tensed up and I leaned back because I just thought there was just going to be this wave of abuse coming down the table. And I looked over at Wes, you know, and, and he's just sort of this placid face and he frowns a little bit and he looks over and he says, well, you know, when do you think you could get it done? And I, I just, I just remember thinking, <laughs> I need to adjust my thinking because the, I, right, this is different. Mm -hmm. This is really different. And I can't, I got to remember that if I'm ever in Wes's position, <laughs> I clearly this, the game is played in a different way, right? I had the same problem when I went to grad school. I, I my first year in grad school, um, you know, I'm in this PhD program. I'm assigned to this great research group that's doing wonderful things. They were involved in all the Detroit middle schools taking over the, basically took over the entire middle school science curriculum for Detroit public schools. Wow. And um, so we were doing tech support and providing uh, curriculum and staff training and hardware and data collection and, you know, hundred plus you know or like 50 at least classrooms it's amazing and um but they found out that i was a certified macintosh te tech uh, technician i had all my <laughs> i had all my apple certifications from previous work and um 
I'm like, oh, you can help us. And so I, you know, I got all these things. They just kept asking me to do stuff. And in the military mode, I was like, okay, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Um, and by the end of the first year, uh, they said, okay, Eric, where's, um, you know, have you worked on this and where's this? And, and I said, no, I haven't actually done many of those things, partly because I just didn't have a clear vision of what I wanted to do because I came in with no clue. Um, and partly because I just, you know, you're supposed to be putting in about 20 hours a week as a graduate student right, um. to, to earn your keep. And I was doing consistently 40 um, on these. I had four different tasks that were all about 10 hours a week. And that was over and above anything else without any meetings to work on any of my intellectual progress. And, uh, and they're like, well, why, what, are you, what are you so busy on that you can't? do these papers and i listed out this 40 hours a week of stuff and the, oh, these all these three senior professors all looked at each other and looked at me and like well why are you doing all those things i'm like because you all asked me to and, <laughs> and each one was like oh yeah we asked him to do that and so he asked him and so i and, and so they ended up hiring these two full-time employees to, to take over all this stuff um but a perfect example i had just i had just never thought to say I don't want to, or it's too much because I just, in the military, again, yeah. that's mm -hmm. not a valid response. I, you know, full well, or, and you know, that your boss knows that when he asks you to do two things that are each going to take 10 hours, you know, that you're going to be working on these things for the next 20 hours and you actually haven't had any sleep, but you don't like, it's just not an option to say, I don't want to, I don't feel like it. And so the military <laughs> gives you that mindset. And although occasionally, as I mentioned here, there are a couple of cases where it ends up being weird. In most cases, it just means that you come off as a lot harder working and more focused mm -hmm. and it's pretty valuable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I definitely noticed that. Like it took me a while to adjust and it would be, especially to working with other people and then having those moments where they just don't do the work. For even, even, not even, sometimes they just not have any valid reasons. I remember going to like the junior college at Harper College in Palatine and there'd be students and I'd come in and we'd have some project or something and they would have done nothing. And I was like, I, how do you even, how do you sleep at night? Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> like I do not compute any, it made no sense to me that you could have been assigned something and you and not for any valid crazy reason you just don't do it yeah. and i was like that makes no <laughs> sense to me <laughs> like what <laughs> i think people have very i think that people have very different personalities about certain things in terms of their drive and their focus and their need for conscientiousness whatever else you want to label it and then mm -hmm. i think their experiences matter a lot if they were raised in an environment where it was sort of routine to not get something done or mm -hmm. to accept certain things i've always been fascinated just to speak to let's just say uh hypothetically, I've been exposed to other families in my life, right? And let's say that <laughs> hypothetically, I was exposed to a family where um, it is sort of the norm to not ask any difficult questions and to sort of allow a certain amount of, I guess, what you would call sort of nonsense into the mix. And so if someone, you know, doesn't want to go, you know, if the family is going to go on a picnic or something, um, you know, instead of the individual just simply saying, I'd rather not go and want to stay home, what will happen is the individual will come up with, uh, right before the timing, it will come up with some sort of outlandish statement of like, you know, oh, I was a I was attacked by aliens and they <laughs> stole my car and I can't make it. <laughs> and everyone will just be like, oh, okay. But meanwhile, right, like we've, we've bought an extra vehicle or we bought an extra expensive ticket for this person because they said they were going mm. and now we're canceling at the last minute. So, you know, it's been interesting to sort of look and say, well, the entire family sort of functions this way, that you, instead of having the, what seemed to be a sensible, just honest conversation that might be a little difficult in the sense that you're going to disappoint somebody because you don't want to do what they want you to do, mm -hmm. you instead hide from that and create a false crisis mm -hmm. to justify this last minute stuff, which is arguably so much worse. It's yeah. just so disruptive and, and violates all these assumptions that people made in good faith about buying things for you or whatever else. Um, so I've just learned that, you know, people are 
fascinatingly different and their backgrounds. And so if, the, if what's been modeled to them is that lack of completion and sort of just blowing it off and smiling and just saying, I just didn't get to it. Uh, you know, that person has never been smoked by a drill instructor. Yeah. That person has <laughs> never been flame sprayed by a department head. That person has never been put in hack by the executive officer uh, for failing to put the papers in exactly the right place in the admin department, all of which I've either seen or experienced. And so you, those experiences, I think, change how you look at things. Right? Mm -hmm. It's strange, too, because I've seen people that in the military, especially that would come into the military without having had any of that, like just getting ripped apart and then did them go completely like, I don't know how to deal with this. Like just totally, especially <laughs> in boot camp. That's like the most obvious one. It's like the people that were never yelled at by their parents, but they're like, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. And they go in, they get yelled at and they're like, Oh, I knew this was going to happen, but I didn't really understand what this was. <laughs> this is actually not very much fun at all. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's actually not just like the videos. I am, this guy's spitting in my face. <laughs> so it's really, it's fascinating to see that happen. And it's weird to see people not know how to react to that in the civilian world, even when it's tame. Yeah. Like, like even, I've seen people that were in the military talk with people that weren't in the military and just a raised voice will oh, like, yeah. throw them off and they'll be like, whoa, and that'll be intense. And then everybody in the military, all those people won't even understand that, that they're like 40% yeah. well, of anger that. is like 110. <laughs> this is the, yeah, you, you recall from the vet classes that I teach, right? I, I teach this concept of calibration and this meter, right? And I just say, never, never go full vet, never go up here to 10 <laughs> or 11 because, you know, you, you have the average normal United States civilian is, you know, zero at birth, right? And maybe their most stressful day is like a level four where like a strange mm -hmm. person who they don't know is yelling things in their direction, but maybe not right at them in the parking lot of the supermarket, right? Mm -hmm. And that's vaguely threatening to them and is probably the most stressed and most danger they've ever felt, right? Um, whereas the average person who goes to boot camp gets to at least a five, right? And then you and then you get to like, you actually get to your unit and get some kind of you know, hazing or crap done and that's a six. And then you deploy, that's a seven. Or deploy overseas, maybe like an eight. Deploy overseas to a combat zone, maybe an eight, right? And, and then nine would be deployed to a combat zone and actually be under fire. And then like 10 would just be this maxed out, you know, you're returning fire, right? And then 11 would be some sort of serious serious beyond description drama trauma in that environment mm -hmm. so there's lots of veterans that have been their meter has been jammed all the way up to 11 mm -hmm. and somebody whose meter goes from 0 to 11 is going you know the typical veteran confronted with a weird person yelling things at, at them in their general direction in a parking lot they're simply going to observe this person, maybe maneuver a little bit to get some cars between them and the threat, consider other options right they'll just think through it pretty straightforward. If you were actually measuring their stress response, it's probably extremely low. Whereas you have an average person who, you know, their biggest trouble is when the, you know, the Coke machine is out of Cokes at work or something, right? And so they see this individual and that's tremendously threatening that they will talk for the rest of the day. They will talk about it and tell the story of the angry yelling man, right? And then everyone at work will be, oh, that, that sounds terrible. Oh my gosh, what did you do? You know, and the, and the typical veteran would just be like, what? Like, I, so, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with him. He's just yelling, you know. <laughs> yeah, just some so weird it's, it's a calibration thing. Yeah. And it definitely, if, if, you, if you recognize and use properly, it makes you able to seem very strong. It's very functional. It's very useful because things that upset other people don't upset you and you can stay focused when they can't. But if you flip it around, it can lead to what really comes off as a sort of a crass lack of empathy. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, veterans at times can seem cruel, right? Because it's sort of like, oh, you know, it's just a... You know, what's the big deal? It was just your dog or something like mm -hmm. that. Or I've seen worse or whatever else. And it's like, 
you know, everybody's suffering is relative. The, the person who's only ever been to four, that's the worst and scariest thing they've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. So you've went to 10, which is a shame, but that happens to a lot of veterans or a six or an eight. And it happened, that's fine, but, you know, have some sympathy for the ones who've never actually seen six, right? Because yeah, four is a lot easier when you've been to eight. But but I, w- I don't think we would say that like every, no, you know, we wouldn't say, oh, to make a better, you know, to make a better society, we need everybody to be traumatized up to a level 10. And then, yeah. and then, all, this, and then, all, and then all this smaller stuff won't matter. We won't argue so much. And that may or may not be true, but I just don't think that's a good plan. <laughs> so, yeah. So you talked about the, the vet success class that you do for the SVA. And I got involved with the SVA basically because I, um, when I was, knew I was going to go to Michigan, my dad was friends with someone, I, I can't remember the guy's name, unfortunately, um, that his son went here and was a part of the SVA. And he reached out to me and we talked about it. He's like, yeah, you know, you should totally get hooked up with them. And that's how I found out about the veterans orientation. I think I emailed you and Phil before I showed up uh, okay. briefly and then showed up. But so I have an interesting, and then a diff, I love the SVA. It's been like become my entire social circle here. It's just nothing but a veterans group. So SVA, for those listening, is the uh, Student Veterans of America. And it's a chapter uh, here at UM that is basically like a professional and personal development group. And it's become my social uh, my social network, my social like social safety net in some sense um, here at the university. Your so, tribe. Yeah, my tribe. And, well, that was an interesting and I, uh, journey for me to get there. I'm kind of curious... How, how you ended up getting part of the SVA or, or you helped like, did you help form it when it was starting? Cause you were here before. Came in just after. So there was a group of individuals who formed it. Um, the idea, I, if I, and again, I wasn't here, I was deployed. I was in Iraq for all 2008, but so 2007 I was here. And I think the individuals who were trying to form it were working on that in 2007. They succeeded in 2008 in forming the chapter and getting the university to put some funds towards veterans issues. Mm -hmm. Um, When I came back off my final deployment and retired in 2009, the group was there, but was very small. It, uh, as groups sometimes do, had had a little bit of dysfunction and then lost some members. So when I came to it, uh, there was probably three or four active folks and three or four others on the periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very small um, and remained that way for about 2009 and 10 as I finished, graduated, and then, then just became like an alumni uh, for 2010 and 11. Um, even into 12, I think, yeah, I would still, I would come to the meetings and help out. I was sort of the alumni who just stuck around. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, would just sort of assist with whatever, because I think, you know, partly being a grad student, being a little older, particularly being a retired officer, you know, was sort of like, at least for the vast majority, um, you know, they kind of appreciated that I stayed involved, found me as a good resource. Right. And I could uh, help them do certain things or, you know, mm-hmm. could coach them on leadership decision, whatever else. It just worked well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time uh, I uh, 2010, 11, I, like, I built my house here. So that became like a sort of a social focal point for the group. Um, and then by the time I became a faculty member in 2013, uh, the university asked me to you know, come teach a class on an emergency basis. And that went really well. And so uh, at that point, I just sort of became a faculty member who, you know, was like the unofficial faculty mentor. Right. And that, mm-hmm. that opened up new opportunities. We started to develop some classes because we noticed there were some specific areas. We said, look, we, we know that there are these five to ten things, areas, concepts, issues that these veterans, student veterans face that cause them to either struggle at college or leave and not mm-hmm. graduate. And said, so let's just attack these straight on. If we know that this particular, you know, bacteria causes this problem, let's inoculate them against that in mm-hmm. advance. 
um, was our theory basically. So let's let's teach them all about finances. Let's teach them how to do the budget. Let's teach them how to prep for retirement. Let's teach them the basic financial literacy skills. Uh, and if they already have them, then let's enhance them so that they're less likely to have issues. Um, you know, if we if they don't know about all their benefits, let's give them very specific, explicit instruction on the benefits, and let's bring the registration professionals right into the meeting to mm-hmm. get them to sign the forms right then and there. And so it pays big dividends. And you know, I'm thinking of a, uh, one of my vets, Josh, who. You know, it was really ambivalent, and I just literally I, I brought Brittany right over to him and said, Josh, fill out these forms with Brittany and get into the VA system for healthcare. And two weeks after he was in the system, he ran over a hornet's nest with his mower and got blasted. I'm surprised he even survived. He was stung so many times and had to go to the ER, went to the VA ER, was fine, saved his life, uh, treated him. He had no long-lasting effects. That would have been... Fifty to a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars in healthcare bills, and he was not insured, and he paid nothing. You know, perfect example. Mm. Get him the benefits, right? Um, and uh, we teach him about campus culture and sort of how to acclimate, right? How like your sociology one on one class is not like the barracks, and that jo- <laughs> jokes you would use in one place are probably not another, and maybe you should maybe consider there's this whole other way of looking at things that you maybe continue to be open to. Um, and mm-hmm. so a lot of that kind of stuff um, and uh, just psychological stuff like motivation and imposter syndrome. And for it's been my experience that almost everyone who's taken these classes has come to me afterwards. And at least one, if not in some cases, dozens of things have said, wow, when you taught me about X, it just changed everything. You know, for one, <laughs> for one of them, it was just sleep hygiene. This idea that sleeping only five hours a night is not normal. It's mm-hmm. not okay. And that sleeping irregular hours is not okay. And then I gave him a checklist of do these 10 things and you'll sleep a lot more. And he's like, I did them all. And you're right. And I'm sleeping like eight, nine hours a night. And it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like I'm. It's like the fog has been lifted. It's like I'm. I feel like I'm a completely different person. I'm like, oh, who knew, <laughs> right? And so, but that sometimes it takes that explicit instruction to say, look, mm-hmm. what you've been taught about using caffeine and sleeping hours and how hard you should push yourself, um, that that they don't have never considered there's another way because this was just you know I was 18. I went into the military and they taught me this very specific set of behaviors and I don't question whether or not those are particularly healthful. And so we can get them to question that and maybe, maybe in some cases change. Um, not to say that, you know, obviously there's going to be some all-nighters in Michigan. It's that kind of place. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's a healthy way, healthier way to go about it. And everything then just also with alcohol use and drug use and everything else, you know, there's that, again, the military, you know, the statistics are really, um, I guess grim is one word to look at it, but you know, the, the amount of binge drinking in the military is, you know, way out of proportion compared to mm-hmm. civilian, right? And so when you come onto college campus where there is an additional subculture of binge drinking, you know, the question is then how do you sort of moderate this, right? Mm-hmm. So you sort of you know, teach them a bunch of tools. And I'm not the guy who comes in and says, um, you know, well, you shouldn't drink at all or anything more than two drinks a day and you're the devil. You know, I'm more practical. And I say, look, at whatever level you're playing around with, whatever you like to play around with, I have a simple question. Do you get everything else done in your life that you're supposed to, you know, or does it have an effect, right? So are mm-hmm. you, are you oftentimes, you know, so high that you can't go to class or that you, or are you so drunk that you can't complete your assignment and it's mm-hmm. affecting your grades that you need to look at that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have, to, whatever your thing that you like to work with is, do you have to have it every day? You know, I had a friend who, you know, called me up is after he graduated. He said he was successful. He was working at his new job and he's like, Hey, Eric, I just need your help. You know, my wife's really been giving me a hard time. And I just, I just like to come home after work and I have, I have three or four beers relax every day. And she just tells me I shouldn't be drinking every day and whatever. And we had a conversation about it. And I asked him my key question. He said, can you not? He said, what? I said, can you not? If you can't not, 
that's another indication of a problem. Like if you have mm-hmm. an effects in your life or if you can't not. I said, so if you come home from work, can you simply get a glass of water, sit down and just chill? Can you just not? And he's like, no, no. I mean, I, like, I, I really like, I, I really need to have those beers. And I was like, well, I think we have our answer. Right. Mm-hmm. That this is a, so whatever reason you are dependent on those. Now, maybe it's just that there's too much stress at work mm-hmm. or maybe it's that you're developing an alcohol dependency. I don't know. Do you drink a lot of other times? He said, no, he just really. So so basically he was self-medicating, he was self-medicating for stress. So we mm-hmm. talk about what does that mean, self-medicating and what else should you be looking at? And so you have a lot of really good conversations around that because in the military, they're just never taught to question it. It's just like, oh, yeah, I had a hard day at work. We're going to hit the bar. We're going to get blasted. Yep. That in and of itself, I don't think is a particular crime or a problem, but when it affects the other things you're trying to do, you got to start asking some questions. Hmm. So those classes are all really useful and they, they've, uh, they've been really, really well received. Yeah. Yeah, they have. I enjoy them. <laughs> I've always been going to all of them since I got here, which is great. There's, um, I noticed that throughout, there's a little theme between all of these things and then something that I've seen here, which is like the creation of an or fostering and or fostering of like this kind of social networking cohesion. And maybe that's definitely, at least in part, a consequence of all your leadership roles, right? Are there any any, like consistent patterns or strategies that you use when you're doing something like that? Like if I was gonna go into a leadership position tomorrow, what, what, what are some tools you could give me to actually make sure that the group runs. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And it's it brings up an interesting one because it brings up sort of a funny theme. I explored this like a year ago I, or a couple of years ago. I actually sat down and plotted out because I had this thought about, oh my gosh, I do this everywhere I go. And what I realized is um, that I'm uh, sort of searching for a term for this. I guess you call me like I'm a virtuous cult builder, <laughs> meaning, meaning even in high school, I was doing this. I didn't know particularly why. I didn't have a particular intent. It was just something that I thought was amusing and was kind of fun, was to sort of get people with shared interests together. And so even in high school, for example, I uh, I felt bad that I had I had was doing particularly poorly. And I mentioned to my dad, always pushed me to take those hard classes. And mm-hmm. I didn't always do well in them. And in junior year in particular, I struggled. And I was in pre-calculus. And of course, I was having disagreements with my pre-calculus instructor. And I, you know, I once famously said to him, "Well, I'm only going to do three-dimensional graphs if you give me three-dimensional graph paper." Um, <laughs> so I got so so I failed that exam, of course, as, as you might expect. I thought I was pretty clever, but no. Um, and uh, so we would fail these exams, and then I felt bad because I was with a lot of other sort of really, as you'd imagine, in high school like this. There's a lot of high-end and national merit semifinalists, you know, smart, super nerd types. And, um, and so I created this group um, called the Dumb People's Organization, um, <laughs> which you could only get into if you could prove that you had failed an honors or um, AP level class or, 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 or a, a big test, like a semester or chapter test. Um, so it was a little way to kind of celebrate if you, if you screwed up, right? And so, so amongst, amongst the nerds, it became this little cult thing, right? Or do you have the honor of, I mean, yeah, sure, you're a National American Semifinalist, but are you in the DPO? And, uh, and it was called the DPO because back in those days, we used a thing called a film camera, which you actually had to take the film and get it developed. And of course, you, you don't have Instagram or anything at that point, but you did want to share your photos. So you would get a double print option. So a DPO. So I had inherited a couple of roles from some photo math that had gone out of business, uh, a big role, a couple of big roles of these pink stickers that just said DPO in big letters. And so what I would do is we would join, I would hand them a sheet of these DPO stickers. I'd be like, yeah, spread these around, right? To, to build the, to build the cult. So all over the school, these little pink DPO stickers would show up. <laughs> People would ask, what is it? What is it? What's DPO? Oh, you got to go talk to frats. And I had this big, I, mean, I typed up a big uh, application form. And of course, back then, even Xerox, this is how old I am. Back then, even Xeroxes weren't that common. And so 
I actually used a mimeograph machine, which is where you take this thing and you type out, you have to be very precise, you type out the entire form and it does a reverse impression of purple wax on the back of it. Mm. And then you put it in a mimeograph machine with this really volatile uh, organic compound that, that you get very messed up because if, you, if you're in a small room running this thing, you end up getting blasted. And you, you put this thing upside down, it dribbles a little bit of the solvent onto the page, runs the page under the wax impression under mm -hmm. pressure, and a little bit of the wax transfer. So you end up getting what looks like a Xerox, but it's purple mm -hmm. and eventually after about 100 copies it wears out but that was how you did duplication back in the day before before the xerox and um so anyway i had this fancy for then uh, mm -hmm. application form that they had to fill out ask them all these dorky questions and stuff like that and uh, i did this for the whole year and ended up uh, it ended up going into the um school newspaper and then once this, <laughs> and it's a fake it's a fake club like it's not even a real club it's not sanctioned by the it's not sanctioned by the school the, the principal's nothing about it it's this <laughs> underground thing and then the yearbook figured out the yearbook heard that there was in the newspaper so the yearbook said well, we're not, they're not going to scoop us and so in my high school senior yearbook as god is my witness in a high school where the the basketball team that that won the states or whatever you know gets a page <laughs> It spans two pages, and it's a story about the DPO. It has my picture with this little thing on my shirt. It says DPO, and underneath it says Eric Fred's Grand Poobah. <laughs> and I just look back at that, and I just think, what was wrong with me? Like, what, what, what is the principal? When the principal gets this, and he looks, and says, what, is, what is this? This is not. This is not allowed. And I just, this is just my personality, and I just do this stuff. I really enjoyed it, you know. And I did the same thing when I was here in ROT. I kind of created a little cult within the drill team and people who are on that drill team still contact me today and talk about how fun that was and have the type of leadership stuff that I did to kind of make it fun and interesting and push people. I just everywhere I've gone, I've done this. And, um, and it's the same kind of thing here. And so if you're asking me big picture, because as I've done like one leadership role after another, what I've started to do now is I've started to only take on the hardest things. And for me, the hardest things are when you're leading volunteers, because then there's no requirement for them to be there. In the military, I do anything to you and you can't leave. That's one of the things that's so toxic potentially with the military mm -hmm. and bad senior enlisted or bad officers because you can't get away from them and they can do whatever they want, largely with impunity. Um, in the civilian world also, people can walk away, right? But you're mm -hmm. still paid to be there, right? So there's still motivations. Whereas if you're leading volunteers, you have to be technically perfect, right? I mean, you, if you if you can succeed at holding together volunteer groups and have people stay with you for long periods of time and voluntarily give you their absolute best effort, that's I think my gold standard for you know that's that's the thing I'm working on now. Like I you know I've done X level of the sport or whatever. And now I'm just interested in like the perfect ski run or something, and mm -hmm. I have the standard that's very unyielding, right? Because it's it's all it's entirely decided by other people. The fact that I have say for back for the VCAT so. So there are areas of the state where the VCATs are non-functional because they, they, they keep turning over and they just they have meetings and it's largely bureaucratic uh, paper shuffling. Right. So there's and to say nothing, and it's, it's not that there's a particular problem. You know, they, they, they do. They're doing this in all volunteerization. It's hard. So I'm not making fun of them or criticizing. Them. I'm saying they really do struggle. Here, we have been able to have this incredibly high performance team for multiple years. We, we have these huge events that reach multiple thousands of veterans um, within our area, um, far beyond anything else that the, a lot of the other ones are doing. And the reason why is because these individuals who I've been able to motivate to stick with me and just give so selflessly of their time. Right? So people say, how do you do it? It's like, I don't do shit. I'm the lens. I just mm -hmm. I convince all the other bulbs to give me their light. 
And then I just help focus it. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing I do is, I, you know, I, I cheer them to give me as much light as possible. I help focus it and we do amazing things together. Um, so that leadership piece is, is that's where you really, you know, contest it. But to is like, how do you I do it? I would say the number one thing for a leader um, more than anything is to know your people well, because you have to know their why. If you know their why, then you can reach them. And if you can reach them, then you can create this sort of belief on the part of those individuals that you are for them and you're trustable and they can count on you and you have their best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's not psychological safety is a piece of that, but it's more than that. So psychological safety is they trust you not to be a dick and not to be cruel and not mm-hmm. to trick them or whatever else. And that they can come to you with something personal or important and you'll treat that with respect. Um, and that you have shared enough about yourself to know that you're vulnerable. So a lot of people, you know, it's, it'd be very easy for me um, to be a very pompous ass. And many people probably think I am a pompous ass, but, but like, you know, so, like, oh, I've got, you know, I'm very successful. I've got a lot of money. I've got all this other stuff. Okay. Um, but, but I'd go out of my way to say, Hey, look, like I don't have all the answers and oh, here's a thing that I screwed up once and I need you to help me not screw up again. And here's a thing that I don't do well. And can you help me with that? And here's a time when I made a mistake and here's what I learned. So I go out of my way to help the people who are working with me understand who I am, what I struggle with, you know, that what, what I'm facing and I think that really helps them to know who you are, right? There's some interesting stuff about like Google, Google's search for the perfect team and some mm-hmm. other stuff that is very interesting about psychological safety and how that puts well. So if you create that and then you get to know them really well and you can give them their why, um, that's really important. So when I know that, for example, I have this superstar who assists me with the VCAT and I've had those conversations with her and she's like, nope. I don't want the spotlight. I don't want to do what you do. I don't want to have to deal with the people. I don't want to have to do the high level motivational stuff, but I want to be your co-chair and I want to do this, this, and this. And I'm like, good, because that is the stuff I'm not good at. And together it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I was going to, if I suddenly, if you suddenly put me in charge of a billion dollar corporation, I would immediately hire her to be my personal assistant, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, even that I just make her a VP or something and put that in there. Um, you know, because she's that good, mm-hmm. but she just does all this essentially just because it's uh, the group does something that she thinks is worthwhile mm-hmm. and she gets to do a thing that she's good at and she gets to do what she wants in a, and it's a dyad kind of thing that works well. Right. So, but I have to know her why in order for that to be possible. If I'm just randomly thanking her, you know, whatever, that's okay, but it's not the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Beyond that, I mean, there's a lot of other classic leadership stuff, right? I mean, I guess I, then I'd go to the next step down, which is, you know, the John Paul Jones things. If you seek, I think it was, uh, what did he say? If you seek to be perfectly obeyed, seek first to be perfectly esteemed. And I always thought it was a great quote because, of course, you know, he served, you know, in the 18th century um, when, you know, as an officer on a ship, I mean, if an enlisted man so much as bumped into him carelessly, he could have that person tied to the mast and flogged. I mean, he had absolute, complete control over everyone's behavior. He didn't need to be nice or do anything positive, right? He had complete control. And yet, his point was, if you really want to lead and you want to have them obey you when it counts and you want to have your orders carried through when you're not physically watching and you're not there, then you have to be esteemed, meaning they have to value you as a person and as a leader. And so getting people to believe hopefully correctly that you are functionally a good person who's trying to do good things and you're and you can be counted upon to sort of make good and trustworthy decisions 
that's really important because then even absent your presence, they will still say, oh, we're going to do it this way because mm-hmm. Lieutenant Fretz has never let us wrong in the past. And even though this seems weird, he's probably right. So let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. be perfectly esteemed leads to the real compliance because push come to shove. If all you've ever done is, is beat somebody into submission to get them to do something. First of all, as soon as you turn your back, they just stop. But when you really need that person to do something hard, if they don't like you, if there's no passion there, if there's no respect, then they may just say no, or they may just quit and they just walk away. And mm-hmm. so you'll, your, your team will fall apart then. So I think all those things are critically important to leadership roles, particularly volunteer ones, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's other pieces that are just useful. And again, knowing more about those individuals so that you know what their preferred sort of style is. Like, you know, you, you could have a leadership style that's very direct and that's fine. But if you have a whole bunch of individuals who are really well trained and already very motivated, they don't really want you in their business. So if you're mm-hmm. if you're really good at hands on problem solving for teams that are struggling, but you happen to find yourself on a team that's not, you need to be able to modify your game, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not what you what you prefer to do is not called for. So so that whole idea of understanding what roles are called for, what skills are called for in different situations, I think is big. Um, yeah. Hmm. I think those those would be the big ones. Those that that stuff I just talked about in my mind is what it's you know it's emotional intelligence kind of percolates behind all that mm-hmm. is is that is what makes the truly great leaders great is they technically they've got the skill set down and they know the basics of of leading by example and following procedure and and you know doing it to a standard but there's a there's a there's an ephemeral quality to really good leaders where they just I use this term, but it's back to the cult thing. When you're establishing a really good cult, right, a virtuous cult, people, in a, in a sense, it's almost a weird worshipfulness. It's not it's not a full-on crazy thing, but it is. Right? It's, it's like it's like they're really into the group. They're really mm-hmm. into the group. They're into what the group is doing, and they're they're into you and 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 the leadership of the group. It's like it matters to them, like in a deeply personal way. I, I like I say, I have people, you know, even the group. Um, the group from ROTC. So we're talking about this is 1988, right? And uh, and this is years later, and they're talking about how some of their more meaningful experiences were some of the stuff that you know we did there, or or um, or when I was establishing this group to build a scout camp in Iraq, and these individuals. I mean, I eventually I think I had upwards of a hundred people following me in Iraq in a volunteer structure that I created out of thin air without any approval from anybody. There was no official memorandum. There was no authority. There was no budget. I was dealing with tens of thousands of dollars, donations and other stuff. We were uh, borrowing uh, huge, um, you know, uh, pieces of military equipment and all kinds of extra gear to build this camp. And it was it was just all on a whim, right? And I, I, had, I had full bird colonels, right? Who were officers higher ranking than me coming to a meeting and saying, what do you need, Eric? You know, and, and tell me what to do. And I'm like, uh, yes, sir. Uh, could, could you do this? <laughs> you know, very bizarre. Like, uh. Yeah. And um, but that was because of they bought into the passion of this mission we were trying to do. And I communicated that clearly. And I had, had you know, in the leadership style I was using, people were finding it compelling. 
and they were feeling rewarded and they were feeling their time was well used and they wanted to be a, this thing that we were building they wanted to be a part of right mm -hmm. and so it's, it was just deeply personal for them and and they still this is now 10 years later and they still contact me and they say hey what's up you know what's up commander and what's up maybe it's they call me major because of course they're i was a navy guy with an army unit so they would always just call me a major but um mm -hmm. but they're like oh yeah that was like the best thing ever and you know i've never had anybody else like you and uh, you know, never never been a situation like that and um it's just it's just interesting to me how strongly people can feel about that mm -hmm. you know yeah but that's that that's that recipe that i try to apply almost every time right mm -hmm. so where are you going now now that you have all these things that you all these pies that you have your finger in yeah. where are where are you going is there another pie that's all right so the question yeah was what's next and again very in, you're hitting me with these interesting questions um because I have over the last year, uh, a number of times, uh, oftentimes while sitting right here in this very spot, contemplating the river and nature, uh, asked myself, you know, what's next? And I, I don't actually have an answer. I, I mean, uh, prior to this in my life, and, I, and maybe it's that I'm, you know, over 50 now. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, a cumulative kind of, maybe there's some sort of fatigue, maybe. I don't think that's it. Um, I'm still, you know, pretty energetic about the stuff I'm pursuing. Um, but I feel like I've reached a certain, I guess, I guess the word is plateau. I mean, I know there's other things to do and other places to see and stuff. And But in the past, there was always something I was driving towards. I was, mm -hmm. I was, you know, I've got to accumulate a certain amount of resources. I've got to complete a certain uh, qualification. I've got to attain a certain thing. But, you know, I mean, you know, my last kid is in high school. Um, he's doing okay overall. He's a little help in math. But other than that, you know, she couple more years and she'll be out uh the other kids are you know, sort of having varying degrees of success in in in, uh, in their uh academic pursuits we'll see where that goes but they're you know they're they're almost you know kind of out of the nest i mean they're still around but um and um you know obviously i'm retired from the military and then i've started this sort of second career in academia but it was one that they you know it's sort of funny i tell people they're like you do so much for the university you know how did you do this career in the university and i'm like i everything everything i do for the university they asked me to do they asked me to teach the class they asked me to teach more classes they asked me to become the chairperson's committee they asked me to create this course for the minor they asked me to you know to lead that part portion of this minor um you know they asked me to teach in engineering um develop these other classes so everything i've done has been sort of at the request of the university i I'd, I'd never intention i'd never had the intention of doing what I'm doing. Uh, so even there, the stuff I'm doing, it wasn't even anything I was driving towards, right? Mm -hmm. um, and even the job with selective service, I, I, you know, there was someone in that mix who who knew of me when I was much younger and doing this job early. And they said, you know, have you talked with Fretz about maybe for this position for selective service for the state director? I had not applied, I had to put anything. And I just got this email, hey, would you be willing to do an interview for a state director position? And I was like, sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I like them well enough. <laughs> and I just figured, honestly, to be honest, I just figured they had an internal candidate they were looking at. And that you know how they do this, right? Yeah. And, they, and they just yeah. need to interview three people. Mm -hmm. So throw me in there and whatever. I, I had no idea. I had filed any paperwork, anything. And I did the interview. It was very, it was very positive. And it was fine. And, um, I thought nothing of it. And two months later, I get this thing in the mail like, oh, yeah, hey, we're going to, you know, you're about to be appointed by the president as a director. <laughs> what the fuck? 
<laughs> I'm like, oh, you guys are you guys are really serious. <laughs> like, oh, I guess I, you know, I, I took that interview a little too seriously, I guess. And I was like, I was like, oh, okay. And then I, you know, I thought about it, saying, okay, well, I can. It's time. It's I recall. It's a volu- it's a uh, part time thing, so I can I can fit this in. But it's interesting. Um, but it's another example of just what like I don't know. And so you reach this level where like you have all you know I've, I've completed all these degrees and I've completed all this other stuff and I do all these things and I've and I've gotten really good at building a team of people to help me get stuff done. So that's all working like really well. And then what else? What else do I need to do? Like, what's next? I'm not, I'm not completely sure I have it, right? I mean, I've got a couple of things. I'm still sort of tinkering with stuff at the university, and I'm doing some home improvements, and uh, I'm trying to help the kids finish up. And I'm, I'm thinking about. I mean, honestly, the one next big task is I think that the the state of the state of um, sort of industrialized medicine that we're dealing with, and particularly with the insurance companies, I've just I've my, my wife included actually help her run her medical practice. It's it's just such an abomination now that in good conscience, morally, like I just can't expect her to subject herself to the abuse that she's taking, both from the patients and particularly from the insurance companies. It's it's almost uh, sadism at this point what they do, and so hmm. I um I really feel like a moral obligation that within the next year or two I have to either find a way to downsize our lives so my wife no longer has to work. Or, um, or get, get her into a different style of practice, like a direct primary care where mm-hmm. she simply, if she sees a patient for X amount of minutes, you pay X amount cash, almost like a plumber model, right? Mm-hmm. The plumber, it's a hundred dollars an hour. If you want me to stay here and, and mess around with some, t- if you, you know, it's ridiculous. You want to, you want to, you want me to tinker with your toilet valve for two hours. I'll do it, but it's 200 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same. So you do the same thing with her, right? Cause, um, I think that's that's a much fairer model. You know, so then, it, it, if mm-hmm. folks want her to spend, because right now they just expect her to fill out all their paperwork for them. You know, I mean, it's just literally every every patient expe- every patient expects she works eight hours a day, right? Sees at least four patients an hour. So there's 32 patients, and every single one of them expects her to do at least something for them that takes five to ten, or in some cases, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that she works eight hours, paid, but not that well. And then is expected to work an additional eight hours, and every single person is absolutely feels one hundred percent entitled to that time, and an immediate response and perfection in result. It's just abysmal, and I don't think that anyone sort of snowflake is responsible for the avalanche or even considers that they're part of an avalanche. But what the collectively what they do is profoundly evil, and it's really mm-hmm. hard to watch her struggle as much as she does, give as much as she does, and then in general be treated as poorly as she is. So I mm-hmm. think if we change to the DPC model. Um, she'll have a much better uh, quality of life and we'll have much better control of like time and it'll be just cleaner, right? Because yeah. then if someone wants to sit and talk with her for half an hour about their kids, hey, man, you're on the clock, right? So like mm-hmm. she's perfectly happy to you flip the script now because what happens now, you know, what happens now is the person wants to talk endlessly for 40 minutes because, you know, she's, she's part of part of good physicianing is is, is friendship, right? And it's, mm-hmm. and is closeness and building those social bonds. And in a lot of cases, she's the only person outside their family that they get to talk to. Right. And so they feel very close to her, but they don't understand that. Like she has to see a patient every 15 minutes or she loses money. So if she, if you're there for a 15 minute slot and you take a half hour, you've just basically forced her to work for free. All she just did was cover overhead and now she gets nothing. And I I think patients, no matter how much you try to explain that to them, they just think, Oh, you're a doctor, you're super wealthy. It doesn't matter what you complain about. Mm. They don't understand how bad the insurance companies have become in this model. So anyway, so that's, that's got to change. And I think that'll be a big thing to do. But then, yeah, what what's big? What's next after that? I don't know. I don't really think. I mean, I'm I'm in a spot where I think everything is really, you know, I've I've gotten to a point where every morning I get up and I'm excited to start the day because I know good stuff is going to happen. I got good plans. I got I got interesting things to do. 
And so I just keep saying yes to stuff that seems super interesting um, and probably won't break the time bank. But other than that, I'm just kind of letting it happen, right? So this this uh, this consulting work I do is a good example. I never set out to be, this is another thing, all, it's, again, all the stuff I do now. I never set out to be an international consultant going and working with refugees in Turkey. How the heck does that happen? Well, it happens because there was some entrepreneurship conference and they lost someone at the last minute and they said, you know, we can't pay you, but can you come and do this thing? And I said, sure. Because, you know, if you ask me and I think you're, what you're doing is good, I'll just say yes. I don't, you know, I don't need more money, right? I have time, expertise. I'm willing to share it with people. And so I went and I did this session. And one of the people in the session was a woman from WDI. And she was super impressed with my instructional stuff. And she's like, wow, you know, we're going to get you on a team. Okay, sure. Give me a call. Right? And they, they, a couple times they called me, asked me, they got all ready to do something. They were going to get a contract in Bahrain or this and that. And in every case, it fell through. Um, so I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe they did. You know, maybe they just have a lot of problems where they don't always get the contract. That's mm -hmm. fine. Um, but I wasn't thinking it was a big deal. And then, you know, last fall, I just got this call like, oh, we've got this crisis situation and we need to help with this thing in Turkey and the person who's going to go can't go. And there's all this confusion and they, they need this and we don't even know what they want. And it's in the, ah, you know, oh, dear, dear, dear. And I just thought, oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, being called in firefighter mode, I got it. Right. And I just went and did that. And it turned out to overlap almost perfectly with my skill set. Right. So it was just like, you know, it would be like the kind of thing where like, you know, you'd been in the Marine Corps for four years and you'd had like tons and tons of radiological training, but you had done this expertise level thing on like Geiger, Geiger counters or something. And they're like, oh my God, you know, Sergeant, you got, you got over here. There's uh, you know, we've got these uh, big things, shipment coming through and none of the Geiger counters are working and we, and nobody's trained. And you're just like, I got you. <laughs> you know? And you went over there and you quickly develop a training thing and you put everybody through it. And like three days later, all the guided cards are working and everybody's trained and using them and saying like, oh, I totally get it now. Yeah, you know, it's the best, right? Sergeant Joukowsky did all this, this, this. <laughs> and, um, and it's great. It feels great, right? Because like you, like the ball came right across the center of the plate and you just swung and it's, now mm -hmm. it's out of the park. And that's a good feeling, you know? So it worked great. But again, I didn't, like actually, it just it just happened, right? Yeah. And then mm -hmm. it, it the options there. You say yes, and you make sure that it's sort of reasonably aligned with your skill set. And then you get in there and you just deliver, right? You work really, really hard. You use all your team skills. You use all your interpersonal skills. You use all your instructional skills. You share all the knowledge that you have, and you know, and people like it. And then it's the next thing you know, you're getting called back over there to do it again. <laughs> so it's awesome. Um, so I think that's more doing more of what I'm doing now. And waiting to sort of, I'm no longer, I guess what I'm saying is I'm no longer fighting the current, right? I've built a really decent raft. It's pretty robust. It doesn't flip over much. I'm pretty comfortable on it. And I'm just, I'm drifting. I'm rowing the raft in the river of life, right? But, but in a, just a mostly kind of a oh, maneuver through a rock here or there. But like, I'm not rowing to try and go down one side or the other. Mm -hmm. I'm just letting the current kind of like, let's see where this goes. I think that's largely where I'm at. And, you know, I mean, depending on how well my body holds up, I mean, I, I could have another 10 years. Uh, I could have another 40. Mm -hmm. To be honest, the idea that I have another 40 years, I look back at like, you know, what I've since, I, since I'm 10 to 50 or 12 to 52, in that 40 years, everything I've lived, everything I've seen, everything I've done, the idea that I have another 40 years potentially, I had to figure out what to do. In some <laughs> cases, it's a little disturbing. Like, I'm like... I guess I could travel a lot. Uh, I don't know. Like, I, like, what am I? So, yeah. I, but, I, but on the other hand, right? Like, as you see, like, I really enjoy building the social groups. I really enjoy helping people find sort of positive energy and direction. And so I think maybe, I think maybe that never gets old. 
I think maybe like, you know, there's, it's not, there's not always another level you have to get to that. Maybe this can just be kind of like my plateau and I can just do these things maybe at a slightly higher level over time. But you know, there's just, there's a lot of students who seem to get a lot out of my classes. There's just a lot of folks I work with mentoring professionally across all my different roles that really tell me that they find my work with them to be sort of meaningful and helpful. And that gives me a lot of energy. And I think that that really feels like this is what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to keep doing that. (laughs) That's interesting. Like that you reflect a lot of stuff that I've noticed. It's like, and that I keep, I try to remind myself of like throughout my life, there's been multiple times where I've just had the opportunity to do things or I've just worked hard or I've just done this and it was, or just done a podcast or just wrote for its own sake. And then that writing later becomes a huge benefit for me. And it was never made to, being able to write was never being done so that I could write good acceptance letters or write good letters to a university submit. It's just that I wrote for its own sake and then that became a benefit later and that helped me out. And there's been like so many moments like that that I've kind of, it's become a bit of a personal maxim of mine to return to this idea of just having faith in the process of life. Like just do things for its own sake and then have faith in that, that that will, well, it'll work out in the end for, and you may have no idea whatsoever where that's going to lead. And that's the part that really keeps coming up with your stuff is like, I don't know where it's going to go, but I'm going to end up in Turkey. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I learned well enough and I do that. These are great points. And I I bring these up with people who I mentor. It's like, don't be, it's a lot of times when I deal with students, you know, they're 21 years old and they're absolutely certain they have to get into Ross business school. They have to be a finance banker and they have to Mm -hmm. make $120,000 a year or their life in existence has no meaning. Mm-hmm. And this idea that they didn't get into Ross. And I'm like, okay, so you didn't get into Ross, but you can still get into business. Go get a communications mm-hmm. degree, get an accounting degree, do, do you know, go, go to another school and do business. I don't know. Go, you know, do something else for your major and mm-hmm. uh, do something else for your undergrad and then go get an MBA. There's a hundred ways to get into business. Don't, mm-hmm. don't act like just this one thing and then your life is over. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, more importantly, every experience you have, do it the absolute best you can. If you can pick up a qualification, a certification, some kind of skill set, always do that. So I, you know, I had no idea when I was working for the Navy and becoming a curriculum developer and running the schools, this, and then getting the bachelor's degree and master's degree in instructional um, or in um, education and training. I had no idea where that was necessarily going to lead. Didn't know it would lead to a faculty position. Didn't know I was going to, you know, when I was starting my businesses or starting my charities, doing these other things, um, when I was doing team skills classes for the uh, Navy, when I was developing leadership instructions for veterans, I never, none of those things specifically said, I've got to do this as a, like a future tool, right? It was mm-hmm. just a thing. So your point about just engage and do really well, you know, where you can accumulate, accumulate things that, skills and abilities are really valuable and then certifications and and diplomas and everything on top of that are even better you build that up because yeah you never know and in my case you know i had i had just become this sort of low level kind of i was a guy who taught a couple classes here and there in psychology and i just thought i'm going to have a little part-time gig teaching these little smaller classes in psychology and i was fine with that i thought this would be a nice little part-time job and, um, you know, I had no idea they were trying to start an entrepreneurship minor at the University of Michigan. I had no idea of this really charismatic guy that had bulldozed across the whole instructional landscape and created this thing that spanned the entire university for this Innovate Blue that was going to house all this entrepreneurship. I had no idea that the entrepreneurship minor was his biggest thing. I had no idea that for over a year they had fought over this entrepreneurship minor and what the core course was going to be. And nobody could agree on what to do. I had no idea that there was this assistant dean who was sick of the arguing and simply got sick of it. And he put the course he put the course in the course guide without there being a course and then said 
bring me the guy who's going to create this course and teach it in 60 days from now. And again, I had no idea that a fellow faculty member, a full uh, tenured professor in psychology who knew of me because of my work mentoring her son in Boy Scouts. <laughs> I, that's how she knew of me. And she knew I did some military, I did some teaching, I had some business background, some leadership. And she suggested to this assistant dean, you should talk to Eric Fetz. And so here I am, the lowest, tiniest little faculty member at U of M, talking to this assistant dean. He's like, this is what I need you to do. I need a faculty member who has all this actual business background, has business success, and has entrepreneurship in his background. I need somebody who can do teach team skills and their personal skills because we want to teach them that entrepreneurship usually fails because you mm -hmm. can't select and keep the right people on your team. Mm -hmm. I want creativity taught as a psychological construct. Right? Well, I just happen to be a psychologist, right? Um, and so he, he asked for this bizarrely shaped tool. It wasn't just a square peg. You know, it was a square with a rounded corner and a spike on the side and a hole through the middle and an antenna thing coming out the top. And it had to have all those things in order to fit through the slot that he was designing. And, I, and he describes all this. And then I look at my shadow on the wall and I look at him and I'm like, well, you're describing me. So I guess it's a good thing I'm here because I can do all that stuff. But again... Who's like, what are the chances yeah. that they need somebody exactly that characteristic? And not only that, but I've created lots of my own classes. I've created classes on short notice and I'm, you know, and I'm ideally positioned as an educator to be given this opportunity to create a class from scratch. And is now, right, it is, a, it, I have my own 200 level gateway course, which routinely has a 100 person wait list, right? Wow. And the, and, and the one common thing to every single person who's ever gotten the entrepreneurship minor at the University of Michigan is my class. That's the only commonality between them all. It's awesome, right? And the students just, they do the most amazing things in that class. I, when, I, when I created, I said, this is either going to be an epic failure or I'm going to finally figure out what U of M students can really do. Because we know they can play games. We know that they've been beaten and abused and psychologically manipulated by this educational system to conform and comply and conform and comply and kiss ass and ask what shape the box is and contort themselves the shape of the box and beg for their A without ever even thinking what the hell they're ever going to do with it. Right? They, they no, no concept that nobody cares about the GPA after you graduate. They care about what you can do. And so in my class, they actually have to come up with this idea, however crazy it is, as long as I like it, I'll prove it. And then they have to do it. And they're like, well, how much do you have to do? As much as you can. Well, how will we know when you're done? You'll be done when the semester's over. Well, how do we know what grade we get? You'll look on your grade card. I'll give you a grade. Well, how do we know if we get an A? Well, you've got to do epic shit. Well, what is epic shit? I will tell you if it's epic shit. You'll get an A. Right? And like, well, I'm, 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 it's just all confused. And I'm just like, no, just run, right? Like you're yeah. on the field, just run. What direction? Well, you, you pick a direction. I'll tell you if it's a good direction. You run. Well, how far do I have to run? You run as far as you can. And they're so like, I had to do this over. It literally for some of them it takes. Some of them get it within about two days. Some of them it takes like four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Before they finally realize, I just want you to run. And I'm not, it's not a trick. I'm not trying to, right? Like, it's not a game. Yeah. I, and, and, they, 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 and they're like, I've never had a class like this. I'm like, well, that's a shame. But, but, a shame. but you have this class now, so make something of it, right? And yeah, some of them, some of them make tens of thousands of dollars. They start wow. companies. I mean, not all of them. Some of them totally screw around and fail. They, you can It's really hard to fail one of my classes, but if you really try hard enough, you can. Um, <laughs> so I am not without a sense of justice. But uh, but in most cases, they do the most amazing stuff. Yeah, and so I really enjoy that. Right, like that's a lot of fun. So I think mm -hmm. doing that, doing that until it's not fun, until the students stop telling me they love it, or until I stop feeling good about it, I can see myself doing that for a while. Do you have any major success stories that came out of that? Like oh sure, that really went off. Um, like yeah, yeah. Well, we have. Um, 
I think the one I liked the most was the guy who figured out how to leverage. Uh, he, he figured out that that vendor vendor badges for pricey music festivals have food vendors. The food vendor badges function as all access passes, but none of the food vendors care. But mm. he realized his friends would care. So he basically brokered a thing where he created a food vendor business for these super 20 festivals where it's really hard to get the tickets anyway and the tickets mm. are over a thousand bucks. And so he would get 16 vendor worker passes. They would come down to the festival with him. He'd rent a cheap apartment where they could flop out. They, they basically gave him four to six hours of free labor as volunteers. And then they could use their vendor pass to wander around and take in the festival whatever they wanted. So they got free access to the thing. They worked for free. He had no employee costs, no overhead of any of that kind, none, none of the legal stuff or anything else. Cause they were all volunteers. Mm-hmm. All he had to do was buy supplies and stuff. So he, he did a custom, uh, uh, grilled cheese business and the dude made about fifty thousand dollars across two festivals using this idea but i had to i had to basically push 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 him so hard to borrow the five thousand dollars to start the idea and he was so glad he did so that was a fun one that's individually cool. <laughs> and then i've had some other cool ones you know we have uh, there's a banana bread uh, group that's uh, currently uh, doing well in ann arbor called go nanas and they're they're a going concern a uh, line leap um was it didn't start in my class but it, it, it grew tremendously in my class there's um there's a clothing brand, uh, Varsity um, and uh, Val- sorry, Valiant, um, that uh, was started um, and a bunch of my students have been involved in. Um, so there's just a whole bunch of things. There's probably, I don't know, 12, about 12 kind of going concerns that are out there. Um, and there's others that just have done amazing things like the Laser Toast team. They had a bunch of, uh, a bunch of really quirky engineer guys um, who were <laughs> friends and they had a lot of goofy ideas and you could tell that they really enjoyed working with each other and they were very smart. They had a bunch of ideas that were somewhat implausible. They were, they were, they were clever, but like too, too clever and hard to implement for the class. And then at the very end, one of them said, well, I had one other idea. You know, there was this, you know, there's those toasters with the metal things you can put in and it'll toast a certain image. So there's a cutout of an M mm-hmm. in the metal. And so then that M gets toasted under the bread. He said, what if you use a laser and you could like put whatever you wanted on the toast? And I stopped and I looked at him and I said, that's an amazing idea. I said, if you can create a laser toaster that puts Jim Harbaugh's face on a piece of toast by the end of the semester, you will all get A pluses. And so, because <laughs> I knew that they needed a challenge and I knew this was, a, and so these guys, they probably put in it. They probably put in an average of 40 hours a week just on this project, all four of them. They were they ripped a toaster apart. They, they designed all the specs. They built a 3D, built and printed an entire 3D assembly to hold the um, the whole mechanism. They ordered three, had to get three different lasers from China. You know, they were filling, <laughs> they were filling out all the import. They were like, Dr. Fritz, you had to fill out all this import paperwork and it's kind of scary. Are we breaking any laws? I'm like, what, any cops show up? Like, no, I'm mean, probably good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's just see what happens. So they were importing these lasers. They were talking about one of them was too weak and one of them was too strong. And like the third one was just right. And they, they finally had to, they built it all, wired it up. Right? And then they had to build the print. They had to code the printer driver. Mm-hmm. And then they had to code a custom iPhone app to control it. So you, so you literally could take the picture. So I could like take a picture of you and then hit print. And your face would be, you know, it'd take a little while. It'd take it's not instantaneous. It, it, right. it took several minutes, and it created a lot of smoke because the laser was sort of burning the surface of the toast. But they made Harbaugh toast, <laughs> <laughs> and they made, and then they made Fred's toast, and they made Jesus toast, and they showed all three kind <laughs> of presentation. I was like, ah, you guys have figured this out. Yeah, you're on the A plus train for sure. Um, they I made Jesus. Toast. I, I even took the Harbaugh toasts. I, I put it in. A, I put it in a glass thing, and I took it down to the athletic department, and I asked Harbaugh to sign it. And, 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 and they wouldn't do it. But, uh, but I was like, oh, that would be so great if you would sign the toast or sign the box for the toast. Um, 
So anyway, and they and they, you know, it, it had like that's the kind of thing with proper commercialization that could totally be like a hammock or schlemmer mm-hmm. gift idea. But they chose not to pursue it because again, they're very bright and they have plenty of other things to do. But I, it, it, they've come back to me. One, one or more of them have, have spoke to me. They're like, Doctor, that was one of the coolest things you've ever done. That was such a great experience, right? And such a resume booster to say that we did this. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'm, I'm glad you did it, right? So those are those are the things I really enjoy, right? Is seeing the students who they finally throw off all the shackles. They get to run as hard as they can with no interference from the system. Yeah, and do something that they're passionate about. And then when they see how high they've climbed or how far they've run, they look back and they're like, wow, I'm really good at this. And I'm like, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so that's that's the super fun part for me is getting them to really, so the ones that really break free and go for it. And then there's lots that do different sort of team skills things, right? They have different struggles. And so I basically, you know, there's close to 300 students in that class. And so there's at least, wow. you know, there's like 70, 80 teams. And I meet with every single student um, in those teams, um, at least once. Right. Um, so it's, it's just a huge investment of time, but it's like anything else in life. You put the time in, you get the results out. Right. So, mm-hmm. so they thrive because we create an environment for them to thrive in. Yeah. And they, they get a lot of personal attention. And then if their teams are struggling and I give them a hard time, there are those groups that, you know, will be, I, I design all these little checkpoints to thwart all of the typical stunts that they pull. So they have to self-evaluate each other. So the laziness gets called out. Mm-hmm. I do these checkpoints. And so by the time we're halfway through the class and I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, okay, Okay, yeah, team 42. I'm going to have to meet with them because this is hot bullshit right here. And this is, they're just making stuff up. And I meet with them. I'd be like, okay, what is this? Like, oh, they start talking and babbling about something. I'm like, no, but what, what have you really accomplished? Oh, we're going to have this meeting. And I was like, no, I keep asking. I just, yeah, what have you really accomplished? And eventually they, they kind of get deflated because they realize I'm not going to keep, I'm not going to let them fluff out of it. And then I'm like, okay, you write down everything you've done. You write down everything you've done. You write down everything you've done, right? And you give me the, give me the key things you've done each week. And then, and we just go through and we say, how many hours did this really take? Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're supposed to be giving me like three hours a week, right? Yep. Minimum. And so it's been four weeks. It's supposed to do 12 hours. And so that's, and then, um, and then that should be, you know, across two months, right? Because we're two months into it. And so I'm like, you should have put in at least 24, if not 40 hours so far. And honest, an honest accounting of the fluff that you just laid out is like maybe six, seven hours. Mm-hmm. And they're really uncomfortable because I've been, I'm, I'm forcing them to really look at what they're doing. And they're, yeah, they're goofing off. They're doing what they used to do. They're getting by, right? They, they, they're confusing kindness with weakness, right? And, they're, and they're, they're abusing their opportunity to sort of run free. They realize nobody's really watching them do what they want. So they're just, they're loafing. And uh, there's a lot of really uncomfortable conversations. You're staring at them. I'm like, and I, this, is my, this is the line I'm known for. I'm sure they joke about this at parties. Because I look them right in the eye and I say, let's be honest. If I'm the boss and you're my employees, and two months ago, I assigned you to this project and gave you some metrics and said, work on this as hard as you can and get wherever you're going. And you came back to me two months later and you showed me this. You know what I'd do? And they look at me and I go, I'd fire every single one of you on the spot. And I can tell that for some of them, I am the first adult who has ever taken the time to deliver that message. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, some of them have a hard time swallowing that message. Mm-hmm. But almost all of them come back and say, Thank you. Because I tell him, I said, you know, hey, man, think of me. I'm, a, I'm a missionary from the real world. And, it, and it's coming at you at about a thousand miles an hour. And so you can you can talk all you want about all this, that, the other thing and whatever else. But at the end of the day, when you're out there and you're getting a paycheck from somebody, they're going to expect you. you know, I mean, there's some sweetheart scams and other things you might find. But in general, you, your boss is going to expect you to, to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And this whole like, I'm just going to make up some slides at the end, and pretend that we worked really hard and do all this kind of fluffy made up stuff. Real bosses are going to see right through it, and it's not going to work. So, 
some hard lessons there, but it's good. It's a, I seem to really enjoy it. Wow. Okay. So in closing then you talked, you just said hard lessons. Is there a hard lesson or a good lesson that you've gone back to that you would just leave with us and the listeners, like just as a final note, hmm. anything in particular that really stuck out? Hmm. I think a couple of things. One of the most important things I heard when I was young was from my first scoutmaster, and he said, lead by example. I think that's pretty important. That's one, if you're going to be a leader, you have to set an example and you have to sort of that whole like be esteemed, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's a big one. Um, I think the other big, uh, other big one maybe would be this idea of it's not about you, that this comes from my work with emotional intelligence, that so often we think that other people are watching us so closely and judging us. And in most cases, they're just trying to live their own lives. Mm-hmm. And even when they do something that seems to be very much about you, whether it's someone swerving into your lane and almost hitting you, it seems deeply personal to you. Chances are they didn't even see you. So it's not about you. Even when your friend attacks you and betrays you, it's not about you. That's a hard thing to think about. I think the more that that has become a mantra for me, the easier it has been for me to sort of get along in life without getting so upset. Um, because in almost every case, when you really get down to it, even if someone has taken the time to target you specifically, they're actually targeting you specifically because you're making them feel inadequate or you're or you're triggering something else in them mm-hmm. so that it feels like it's about you because it's an attack by them against you. But at the end of the day, in that person's heart, it's actually not about you. They're, they're dealing with something else. The person who's screaming at you in the checkout line doesn't actually even know you and normally wouldn't do this, but is having the worst day of their lives. And so in that moment, when they're calling you all these names and screaming at you and triggering the stress response, if you can stop and say, hey, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Can I help you with something? They wonder what to do with that. You know, there was someone who was trying to start a fight with me just the other night at at a concert. He turned around. He's like, you guys are uncalled for. You don't do it. I said, you shouldn't. And I said, you know, you're exactly right. And he puzzled. And he goes, well, yeah, you almost don't call for you. And I'm like, you you are. That's correct. That's true. <laughs> and he, and he, you know, and he, and he just, I think he, he sputtered one more time. And I said, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> he just turned around, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, right?" He's like, "I don't want to fight this guy, right?" Like, it's not, you know, and I got, I, you know, I'm, I'm relatively covered. I was like, you know, I got a really good buddy Marine right next to me, and he was tapping my knee, like, "Are we going? Are we gonna go? Are we gonna, are we gonna take him out?" You know, <laughs> it's, it's fine, everything's fine. But you know, it's not about you, right? Like, I just there's so many things that so mm-hmm. many people will do, and when you really come to embrace this idea of, look, other people can do what they got to do. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to, I'm going to have control of myself so that other, I'm going to, nobody else gets to tell me how to spend my energy. Nobody else gets to tell me, you know, what I need to do. Really ask yourself this question. If another person can say words to you and control your behavior, you are not a very strong person in my opinion. Hmm. And so I've worked on that a lot. I think that's a huge one that took me a long, long time to learn. So lead by example. It's not about you. And then just a general idea of, there's just something to be said for just working really hard and, and being really good at things, right? Like I've always tried mm-hmm. to take every opportunity to, to do a really good job, right? To not accept a kind of a half-assedness, to just be, to really focus on doing your best. So again, back again, back to the Boy Scouts, on my honor, I'll do my best. I guess so <laughs> I'm programmed, programmed from youth. Um, <laughs> um, but that, I think that's valuable, that that, that idea of, of, of seeking excellence um, has been a big one and has led to a lot of good results for me, right? Not perfection. Right. You know, because perfection is like a journey and a destination. Right. So, right. so you, you know, I don't think you should be a slave to perfection, but um, but that you should try and work really hard and do the best. And, and pretty, pretty much that's good enough. Right. That's uh, it usually yields good results. So wow. thank you uh, for 
both being a good mentor to me throughout my time here. My pleasure. Uh, a good friend. And for coming on the podcast. All right. Yeah, great. This is great. So many takeaways on this one. All right. Thank awesome. you for the time. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.